Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Coming topics. Um, next week <clears throat> on the University of Lethbridge campus, we have Carol Williams, Brittany Adams, and Shannon Ingram speaking on women's reproductive autonomy and legal access to abortion. How can we ensure broader democratic access? Also next week, we have Rachel Notley from Alberta's NDP party, new leader, Enhanced Perspective. Couple exciting topics also in the next few weeks here. November 27th, we have Syed Sahawardi. He's from the Calgary Imam Muslims Against Violence. And he'll be speaking on the threat of ISIS in the Middle East. So that'll be an interesting one for sure. And we also have Brian Keating coming on December 11th. And he'll be speaking on his travels. So just for your information, all upcoming sessions are listed on the SACPAW website, and that's just sacpaw.ca. Uh, audio from previous sessions are also available online. And just outside the door here in the hallway, there is a box for ideas and comments, and you're welcome to contribute. So I'd like to invite the speakers back up, Tim and Rob. Don't see Tim. Rob first. <laughs> oh, here he comes. Awesome. Um, just so for questions, try to keep them brief. State your name first, and we'll get them answered. Well, thank you, uh, gentlemen. I think this question's for uh, Tim, and it's a picky one. I apologize in advance, Tim. We hear a lot about uh, transmission lines down here. You didn't bring it up in your talk. And we see a charge on our bill. And uh, I'd like you to help me understand one aspect of it a bit more. Uh, the Southern Alberta Transmission Reinforcement Project, and this is AESO language, to support new wind farms projected to cost nearly $3 billion dollars has been shown as approved on the AESO website since 2009. The uh, 2014 status report shows subprojects under a construction milestone measure. Milestones such as 500 megawatts of generation forecast in Pincher Creek, Pigan, are indicated as milestone met does that mean AESO is ready to go ahead and build the subproject, or is a commitment to build the wind turbines needed first? And I apologize, my name's Dwayne Pendergast. I don't think I gave that. Um, thanks, Dwayne. Uh, I don't know if I can give you a great answer, I'm afraid. Uh, um, it is kind of a chicken and egg scenario in terms of... Um, and I think there's, there's, there is, in spite of, I think, some of the, 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 the cost reductions we've seen uh, in wind in particular, uh, the market in Alberta is still a challenging one uh, because uh, just the, the way the merchant market works, uh, you have to have big capital cost investments up front. And I think this is sort of a challenge for any, any renewable developer, whether it's wind, hydro, solar, you name it. Um, and so the way the Alberta market, without getting into too much gory detail, <laughs> but the way the Alberta market is, is meant to work is that uh, if you want to build any type of generation, whether it's wind, solar, hydro, gas, coal, 
um, the, the the job of the the uh, the ISO is to make sure that there's going to be transmission available to you. And so it's kind of a chicken and egg scenario where um, you know they need to know whether there's going to be wind built before they build transmission, but the wind guys can't go ahead and build something until there's going to be transmission there. And so it's it's, it's a bit of a struggle at this stage of the game. I don't think I have a great answer for you right now. Um, probably best to talk to ISO about that. Um, but um, uh, you're, you're right that there is, you know, uh, if you are going to bring more wind out of southern Alberta or more solar or you name it at a large scale, you do need more transmission. And that's just, uh, that, that is the fact of the matter, the same way we're investing in transmission uh, in the rest of the province as well. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you for your presentation. My name is Dr. Vernon West. I'm a retired veterinarian rancher. My question is, what happens when the wind quits blowing, the sun does not shine? Are there any, have you any methods of, of uh, storing the energy? Can you pump water into a reservoir and use it to re- produce uh, electricity when it runs out? Or there, uh, these look like to me the two big deficiencies in, in wind and power. Thank you. Let me take a quick stab at it, and then, and then I'll let Rob, uh, just because I'm closer. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you, obviously, at this stage in the game, you do need backup in the system the same way you need backup for any other um, generation. For example, you know, this summer we had about 4,000 megawatts of uh, coal and natural gas plants that were also taken offline because they needed operation and maintenance to them. So, you know, it doesn't always, it's not always... Sunny and it's not always windy, but at the same time, you can't always use coal and you can't always use natural gas because you have to take the machines offline. And so, I mean, that inherent backup is is necessary in any electricity system. Uh, right now, we're at about five percent of our supply comes from wind, and so it, it's it's we're in a situation where what when when it's windy, speaking about wind only, um, you're backing off. You're not burning as much uh, natural gas by and large, uh, or you're not burning coal, but, but by and large, when it's windy, you're not bringing as much natural gas. It doesn't mean that you're building out a bunch of extra natural gas to support that. It just means we're not building, we're not running the existing fleet quite as much. So that's kind of the situation we're at right now. When you get into kind of the, the 20, 30, I mean, Denmark is at 30% wind now, and they don't have um, batteries or other things. But when you get into kind of the 30, 40, 50, 60% range, then that's when you do need to start thinking about uh, some of these backup systems. Uh, pumped hydro is one example that you can use. Uh, where they do that a lot in the states already, where you basically use your existing hydro dams, um, pump water right back up them, use the same uh, the same PEM stocks. I mean, that's one example of ideas you can be using. I think storage is 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 kind of the next wave. It's really going to help move renewables forward um, to be able to move, uh, you know, to overcome some of those in- integration challenges. And I think that's that's something that, that's coming, but it's not at this stage in the game. It's not sort of a barrier to development today but it is you know it is sort of 10 and 20 years out and rob can probably speak to that more especially at a smaller scale on kind of the the battery technology side of things well yes i would say uh, good uh, efficient low-cost storage is kind of the holy grail of the renewable energy movement um, it will solve a lot of problems but as tim pointed out even baseload power isn't necessarily not intermittent intermittent in california um, which is pretty reliant on natural gas. There was a very cold winter a couple of years ago, and all the natural gas went to the East Coast to run heaters. Uh, and uh, California started experiencing brownouts because they couldn't get enough natural gas to run there. And in that case, they actually tapped into their renewables, and 
solar and wind and biomass and biogas and geothermal, all of which what they've developed fairly well actually saved the day for them. <laughs> so the, it turned the tables in that case. Um, a number of technologies are being worked on. Some of them are being used. There's a number of utilities who are starting to use large battery systems. Um, you can store energy in different forms. For example, at the University of Alberta, I believe they when electricity is cheap, they make ice, and then they use that to, for their cooling needs, for their air conditioning. That's a form of storage. Um, there's also storage in um, molten salt um, in southern California. They're using molten salt to store it in a heat form, and then that runs a turbine. Um, there's a lot of schemes like that going on, some of them more cost-effective than others. But there's also, also other options. Utilities have to be very agile and agile and creative. It's a different world for them. Um, Alberta is a net energy importer. We actually use more energy. Uh, we actually import on a net level more energy from other provinces. That can fill in the gaps at certain times. Um, you can do load management. You can have contracts with large uh, consumers that say, if if we get into trouble, you shut that down, and that's our agreement. So there's there's a lot of creative ways to work with it. Next question. My name is Ron Renwick, and I have a question for Tim. Um, the Lethbridge Community College runs a operation maintenance training program for windmill operators, and I have uh, one of some of my ski partners have attended it and. It's a very good program. They have uh, good classrooms, good instructors, labs, windmill components. In fact, if you walk out behind the college, uh, there's a pedestal and a tower there, turbine blades uh, cut apart so the students can see them. But what is often overlooked, this program consumes a lot of energy, which in turn produces a lot of CO2. And really what got me thinking about this, a couple of years ago I was riding my bicycle near the Wilson siding east of Lethbridge, and there were trainloads of windmill components out there, which again takes huge energy and produces huge CO2 to deliver them. So I started thinking about it a little further, and if you look at the entire life cycle cost of a wind farm and its effects on transmission, grids, whatever, uh, the impact is very substantial. And if you think about it a little further, I doubt if you're achieving very much in the reduction of CO2, and in the worst case, you could actually be increasing CO2. So my question is, have you really done an objective analysis of wind farm life cycle as it affects CO2? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good question. And, that, I mean, that was the question that people asked. The very first question I think people asked when they were looking at uh, wind and other technologies is that, is that, you know, back in the 80s and the 90s, is, are, is this going to help us? Because uh, that was the whole point of, of trying to develop these technologies. Uh, and so there's many, many, many life cycle studies that are out there, uh, and uh, all of them show that a wind turbine, sort of life cycle, cradle to grave, including you know building it, transporting it, uh, all the equipment that goes into it, the equipment that you need to you know mining the mining the steel to build the towers, the cement, and all of that. Uh, it's about a, it's somewhere between us. It depends on the turbine and the site and all that sort of stuff. 
but it's somewhere between a, you know, a six to eight month payback period in terms of all the energy that goes into it. You'll get that energy out of it in the first, within the first year of that machine operating. Uh, and the machines can operate you know, between 20 and 30 years. And so, I mean, this, I can give you tons of studies that have been done on this. So there, there's many, many of them that are out there. But uh, the, the evidence is really clear. Know um, that that is a life cycle study. Oh yeah, definitely. you know that. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, as I said, there's, there's <laughs> numerous studies on this topic because it's a great question. And it's a question that, that it's a question that the industry and people, you know, promoters of it, were asking themselves from day one. Uh, so it's been studied uh, a lot, and there, and there's really solid uh, evidence looking at it. Yeah. Um, we'll just have you take a seat. Thank you. <laughs> My name is Mary Shillington. Thanks for the presentation for both of you. You uh, really whizzed through it uh, since you had limited time. My question is for Rob, uh, and it's around solar issues. I'm involved with the executive of Environment Leftbridge here, and we have a subcommittee that has been working uh, with various people from the city and also uh, solar people uh, developing a, a booklet about solar and the process to go through to get permits and all that kind of thing. Um, what kind of advice would you give to us or to the people here about how we can make that process a little better? Because you said some of those costs and so on are, are more more are pretty steep. So, what kind of advice would you give us? Well, in terms of a couple of resources. Um I know the city of Edmonton has developed a, uh, a document for that. It's a very nicely presented pamphlet. The title of it, I'm not sure, but if you call the city, they could probably get that to you. Uh, I was very impressed when I looked at it. Um, we presently have a Nate student doing a capstone project where she's going to be in, um, developing in very simple forms for our website the step-by-step -step processes of getting a permit in Edmonton anyway, but also the microgeneration process in Alberta, and also the steps to just going from thinking solar is a good idea all the way to having a working system, including getting a contractor and permits, and then the microgeneration agreement and such like that. So if you keep in touch with us, uh, her work will be done and on our site in April, end of April. So there are resources out there, and... Uh, there's probably numerous other municipalities have struggled with this issue in the states. Yeah. So, um, it's a noble, noble attempt. <laughs> um, just a word on payback uh, for solar. Uh, that kind of work has been done as well. The analysis, and typically, so so the question really is in my mind is when is the energy payback? It takes energy to make everything. Uh, with the oil sands, the energy payback, the ratio of energy in versus energy out is about one to three, is my understanding. One one unit of energy in to get three units of energy out. Sometimes it's one to 2.5. So it takes energy to make any kind of energy. Um, when is the energy payback? Um, with renewables, there is an energy payback. And with, with solar, it's typically between 18 months and three years. And at that point, from an energy standpoint, it's it's free. You've generated the equivalent, including all the different steps um, through the life cycle. Thank you very much, Tim, Rob, for your presentation. My name is Clive Schopmeyer. I live in Coaldale. Uh, 
a few minutes ago, Tim, you discussed uh, backups, and uh, uh, Ron Renwick talked about uh, backups a little bit. We get about 5% of our electricity from wind. I, I thought it was 4-something, but 5 The question is, uh, we have spent, give or take, $5 billion on wind. Uh, that's the investor cost for the turbines and all these people in this room. Uh, that $2.8 billion that uh, Duane mentioned, you and I are paying for that to integrate wind. Uh, we're paying the, the billions of dollars for the transmission lines. But my So my question is, though, if we get 5% of our electricity from wind, how much have we reduced the carbon dioxide? Yeah, good question. I, I don't know if I have the number offhand, but it's it's fairly easy to figure out. Uh, uh, they're, they're, the Alberta government has tracks it, um, so I, I I'd have to. I, I throw it on the number off the top of my head, uh, but I can find it out for you and happy to, to provide it for you. Uh, on you know on the cost of transmission, um, yeah, it's it's, it's important to put in context sort of the overall transmission buildup that's going on over the province as well. Uh, it's about a twenty billion dollar transmission buildup that's going on about. I think it's about 2.8 of that, sort of in southern Alberta. But uh, you know, the big transmission build-out is the corridor between Alberta and Calgary, and then up to the oil sands as well. And so, you know, that's you know, it's important to remember that, that there's 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 a major transmission build-out that's going on uh, throughout the province as well. It's a supplementary. Uh, it, I've asked the Department of Energy uh, for the carbon dioxide reduction from wind, and they cannot answer that question. It seems to me if the raison d'etre for wind is carbon dioxide reduction, it seems to me that there should be a very firm answer to that question. And it's, it's, much, can... le and it's much less than 5%. We've spent $5 billion, and I don't think we've really gotten a lot of benefit from it. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, the, the numbers, as I say, they're, they're, they're easy to calculate. I just don't have them. I don't have them with me, and they're, they're tracked by the Department of Environment, so there's no reason they shouldn't be able to uh, give you those numbers. Uh, my name is Van Christou. Um, thank you for your presentations, both of you. Um, uh, very enlightening. Um, with the great amount of building that's going on here in Alberta, uh, I'm surprised that uh, the solar people haven't developed roofing sections that uh, can be installed in homes. Can you tell us anything about uh, uh, work in that direction so that that we catch up with that while the, before this construction happens, that we have uh, a uh, route through which uh, solar can be installed into new buildings. So I think there might be a couple ways to address that. There is something called roof integrated photovoltaics or building integrated photovoltaics, where the photovoltaic uh, panel essentially is integrated with the roof, so the roofing is generating electricity. And there's also cases where they actually put them on the side of a building in lieu of siding, so it replaces siding. Um, both of those have been going on a little bit in Alberta, uh, not tremendously because of the cost. It's less expensive just to add, add modules to an existing roof. Um, you definitely need to be w very waterproof. Uh, so... Uh, I've put on some roof integrated roofing, uh, 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 photovoltaic integrated roofing, and um, it's worked fine. It has its place. It looks fairly normal. It kind of looks like a normal roof. Uh, it doesn't have glass involved, so it's less.
prone to people shooting at it, <laughs> and uh, and you can't steal it. So certain situations in the inner city or something that's probably useful. But uh, for the from a cost standpoint, it's much more cost effective to use the traditional modules, framed modules. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of things that municipalities can do to encourage solar uh, roof systems. Uh, you know, looking at zoning, making sure they're protecting solar access. So your house has some degree of solar access, maybe even legal solar access. There's solar access laws. Um, perhaps having subdivisions face their roofs so that they can accept solar. You know, like that might, in some parts of the world, it's just a requirement. Thanks, Rob. Yeah. We'll go to the next question. My name's Lawrence Hoy, and I have a question for Tim. Um, it's, thank you for a very slick presentation. Um, I have a problem with your citing, and I've been to a number of presentations where you cite a lot of statistics from Europe. You know, the industry is growing. Fine. That's, that's one thing. But the contribution to the total network is quite high over there because they happen to have the North Sea, the Atlantic, the Mediterranean, and certainly in the North Sea, the wind blows continuously. And so that tends to distort the picture relative to Alberta. Now, the, my question is, why do you keep citing all of this material from Europe? I don't see any North Sea around Alberta. At least I haven't dipped my toe in it recently. Thanks. Uh, the, the point I was trying to make with the European data, uh, you're, you're right. I mean, it's a different, it's a different animal, no question. Uh, and and they're, they're facing different pressures. And I think one of the reasons that uh, Germany in particular is interested in building out, I mean, there's two things that Germany is doing. They're, they're phasing out their nuclear fleet very quickly, um, and they're also trying to reduce uh, gas imports from, from Russia. And so we don't have either of those issues in Alberta, right? So it's obviously a different animal. Um, but but uh, the point that I'm trying to illustrate with, uh, with what's going on in Europe is that, you know, that you, you – They've, you know, they've dealt with a lot of these questions because all these questions have come up before. Well, what if it's not, you know, what if it's not windy? How do you integrate this? How do you back this up? Are we actually getting emission reductions? They've thought these things through and they've and they've overcome a lot of those technical challenges. And so that's why, um, that's why I'm showing that data because they've, they've, it's a working experience of having gone through that through those issues and, and overcome some of those issues. Um, the fact of the matter is, though, is that southern Alberta in particular and most of Alberta is much windier than Germany is, and so uh, the, the the majority of um, uh, I mean, the data is the data's there, uh, but uh, so so it is what it is in that sense. But uh, uh, but at the same time, you know, the data I was showing was also from the United States in terms of uh, the levels of, of renewable energy you're seeing uh, in the U.S. Uh, I mean, Texas, for example, is about, as I said, about 10 percent wind. Uh, Iowa, which is you know not that far from here as well, is at 30 percent already. So there's there's working examples uh, in in North America we can point to as well. But the, the point of showing the European data, I think, is to sort of Obviously, they're ahead of they're ahead of uh, us when it comes to re integrating renewables, uh, and so the point is just to sort of say, you know, these technical challenges have been faced and overcome in other jurisdictions. Thank you, Tim. Next question. 
Um, well, Terry Shellington, thank you very much for your uh, information-rich uh, presentations. Uh, two quick questions, if I have the moderator's um, approval. One is, what's the lifespan of a solar panel? A uh, long time. Um, thank you. <laughs> one of the short questions. Now, um, let's see. I put photovoltaics on my house uh, 35 years ago. Uh, I took the modules off 25 years after I put them on, uh, not because they weren't working. They were working fine. But I needed to <clears throat> um, upgrade the voltage, have a different voltage for my inverter. So I bought different modules with higher voltage and sold those to friends, and those are still in use. So they do degrade 0.5% uh, per year. So there's a slow degradation, and that, that's why they're warranted for 80% of original output after 25 years. Okay. Thank you. Secondly, uh, go back to a previous comment you made. You remarked that, that uh, oil has a unit input of one to three, one unit in for three out, or maybe two and a half. I didn't hear you answer about wind and solar in the same language. You remarked about a, a year to 18 months. Can it be quantified in the same way for wind and solar what unit of input yields what unit of output? Um, I don't know the number offhand, but uh, you know, if you go back to again, there's there's, there's lots of studies on this. Um, uh, the, the one that I'm the one that I'm thinking of most recently is from the U.S. Department of Energy, um, and I think it was about uh, it was less than a year of energy that went of year. I guess a year for one year in, you got about uh, 19 years out, and that's assuming the wind turbine is going to last about 20 years. Uh, what I think people are thinking is that they're, they may last uh, up to 30 years. So it's about it's probably, in, in a, from a wind point of view, it would be probably close to, to 1 to 20 as a comparison. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, we only have time for these final three questions. Yes, uh, thank you for your presentation. My name is Cosmos Vucinos. I'm a professional engineer. And I have been operating wind and power, uh, wind and solar, for the last 30 years. Based on the questions that people have asked, it's obvious that there are a lot of unanswered questions. You seem to be doing a very good sales job, really, giving the positive things of the thing and not the negative ones. But the people, in order to make their opinion, need to have both positive and negative events from every technology, not just one. And the, the medium here, it is not conducive to getting a discussion. About five years ago, I had invited you to such a discussion team, and somehow you disappear out of harm's way in Ottawa. Can we have your question, please? Yes, the question is, I'm repeating my invitation again, and actually to both of you. Are you going to accept an invitation to participate in a two-way discussion where we can pry out of you the negatives, both sides of these technologies, so the people can evaluate that because we have, and the reason is that, we have a lot of youth that head into make a career in technologies which might not exist 10 years from now in industries. Great, and thank you. Very important. And I'll pay your expenses <laughs> if you need to. I have dialogue, sure. Are you going to accept? Sure. Absolutely. Well, 
hello, my name is James Moore. Um, on Sunday, as you pointed out, the IPCC report came out. This is a conclusive report. Uh, world scientists agree we're in dire straits shall it, if we continue with fossil fuels. I heard I was listening to this on Sunday, <clears throat> and then on Monday, and for the rest of this week, I've been hearing about people salivating about pipelines. The Republicans means maybe we'll get the Trans Canada. There's a 900,000 barrel scheduled to go from oil sands to Edmonton, Energy East, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, what do you think about this disconnect? this inability to realize from one day to the next, like in terms of the political landscape, in terms of the corporations that are mining the fossil fuels on the earth, do you think it's deliberate idiocy or is it more malevolent than that? Can you explain perhaps what this cognitive dissonance and this disconnect might be? I open the question to the floor. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, we don't have our feedback loops fully working. If we had our feedback loops fully working, we would take care of our own survival. Our bodies are designed to have those feedback loops, but our economic system, unfortunately, and our, the way we pay utility bills, et cetera, doesn't have the feedback loop fully operative. So we, we have externalized costs that we don't realize um, for our electricity that we're paying in other ways, like through our health, and we're not paying through our bills. So our, ec our economic system is not giving us the proper feedback loops that we need to connect up with what you're speaking about. That's one offer for you. Thank you. My name is Jim Byrne. Uh, gentlemen, I'd like to thank you for a very factual, uh, straightforward science presentation based upon what I happen to know is the very best science in the world, and the people in Europe are doing excellent science on renewables. So thank you very much uh, for what you've presented today. Uh, and that's what we do as scientists. We go to where the best people are. So if I want to save my child who has cancer and the best treatment or the best technologies in Germany, I want to know about that German technology. Um, my question is going to be about subsidies um, to you. Um, I'm wondering about your subsidies, and I want to put it in context. The Alberta government recently subsidized carbon capture and storage for $2 billion. We got nothing. Uh, and we've subsidized the fossil fuel industry for a trillion dollars over the last 35 years. A trillion, folks. So could you tell me what the subsidies are that you get? What's the check you get every week or every month or every year from the provincial or federal government? And I would really appreciate, I don't think you need to go to pennies. You could just go to whole dollars, <laughs> unless it's less than whole dollars. Thank you very much. Uh, well, quick answer. In the Alberta context, there, there is no uh, direct financial subsidies from the uh, uh, Alberta government. There is the... Uh, specified gas emitters regulation uh, program, which, which uh, requires uh, emitters of fossil fuels to be able to reduce uh, their tonnage by a certain amount. And, and one option they have, uh, if they can't reduce emissions on site, is to, uh, to buy offsets. Uh, and so those offsets right now are about uh, the equivalent of about a penny a kilowatt hour or $10 a megawatt hour. And so wind farms 
uh, can opt into that uh, if they're able to sell their offsets. So that would be, I don't have a number for you because it's not a direct subsidy from, um, from the government, but it's a bilateral transaction between companies trying to reduce their emissions and it's their way of, of reducing emissions. If they can't reduce them on site, uh, then they can pay renewable energy um, plants to do that for them. There are no incentives for solar at this point in Alberta. Uh, there have been a couple of brief programs that took place, one in Edmonton and one with Alberta Agriculture for Farmers. Uh, other than that, there are no incentives um, in terms of government. The CISA, the organization I'm involved with, occasionally gets a little bit of grant money from the city of Edmonton for a program that they want us to partake in, or occasionally the province is also supported in the occasional program. So that's the extent of it. So that's it for today, folks. Um, thanks, Tim and Rob, again. Uh, you've given us a lot to think about. And hope to see you all in future SACPA sessions.